Well, hello, church. If you would open to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we will just look at the first six verses of this this morning. This is God's Word. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. Judas who betrayed Him was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so Jesus, we acknowledge You right now that You are not in this garden. You are at the right hand of the Father. But You were in that garden. And these things that we just read happened to You there. And You said these words and these words were said about You. And and so Lord, would You sober us as we enter into this very dark night that is also a very glorious night. Lord, would You teach us and show us more of who You are and more of the glory of what You have come to do. And so Lord, we we ask You that You would do this today, even in this room, even in our lives, and do it for Your name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you know, we are, we have been in the Gospel of John for some time. Uh, maybe an understatement. It's been since 2016, and uh, we've made it finally to chapter 18. And uh, one of my kids said to me uh, a few nights ago, we were, ta- I was telling him we're going to get back into the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 18, and uh, the, with no sarcasm. Uh, I promise you, they, they were very serious about this. They said, Dad, don't go so fast through the Gospel of John. You're going too fast. And I, I said, I don't think anyone uh, will agree with you on how fast we're going. Um, and if there's, if there's anything that we've seen studying the Gospel of John, um, it is that when you come to a verse and you realize and you begin to dig into that verse or that chapter, you realize there's layer upon layer of depth in who Christ is and in what Christ is doing. And chapter 1, it starts saying, from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. That's what our souls need. We need that fullness that is in Christ to overflow in our lives grace upon grace. And um, some of you 
think if you're honest, you would have to say that your inner man is not uh, being renewed day by day, but maybe withering away. You feel a slow drift away from the Lord. Some of you would have to admit that maybe a coldness and apathy and indifference toward God has even emerged in you that you wonder, what is going on? And it isn't quick necessarily. Maybe it's more subtle and slow, but you've just seen the things of this world become a point of anxiety. Look at prices of things, houses, jobs, the economy. And you look back and you think, I used to not care. Now, this is all I can think about. But for many of us, the Gospel of John has been this. uh, It's been manna from heaven. It's been food for our souls. We found in the Gospel of John the bread of life. We found living water to, to quench our thirsty souls that nothing in this world can, can do for us. And, um, and so we return again to the Gospel of John for this reason. We'll just jump right into it. Chapter 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, these words meaning, uh, I, I think, uh, John 13 through 17, so everything He just said in the upper room discourse, in the high priestly prayer, which we won't review. I wanted to go back and just spend a week reviewing, but we spent a few years on these words that he is referring to, so we won't do that today. We'll press on. So it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, when he and his disciples entered. I want to pause there on that garden. Um, John doesn't name the garden here. You'll notice he just says a garden. Um, We know from the other three Gospels, that's the great thing about studying the Gospels. We don't just have one account, we have four. And so you, you put them together and see things that are emphasized one place and not another place. So we know they're entering into Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but John doesn't say that. He knew that. He was there. But he doesn't say Gethsemane. He just says a garden. Why? And I've been thinking about that this week. I've been thinking a lot about that. Why? Does he not say Garden of Gethsemane? Why just a garden? Is there something to that? And I think there is. I think he's doing what John often does. He's a master at this. He, he takes a very simple concept. Light, darkness, death, life, truth, belief, word, abide, right? He has all these, just one word, and there's so much meaning in that word, theologically, biblically, you go back in Scripture and you begin to trace out that word and you go, this thing is unbelievably deep. And then he just uses the one word. And we're supposed to go down into the depths of that word and think about what that word really means. I think that's what he's doing with garden. He doesn't just want us to think of the geographic location. Oh, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, he, I don't think he minds that we think about, it's not like he's trying to hide from us that it's the Garden of Gethsemane, but he just wants the broadness of it so we think of the biblical theme, so that we think of the theological significance behind the idea of garden. That's what I think he's, he's doing here. And he's doing something that none of the other 
authors do. They all give us the specificity, the the geographic or historicity of this garden. Uh, He just says, a garden. And he says it four times. This is also significant. It's mentioned once in the other Gospels. It's mentioned four times. This word garden is used by John. And so what I wanted to do today is lay out three gardens. There's three significant gardens in the Bible. So I titled this sermon, uh, The Three Gardens of God. The Three Gardens of God. And this is really amazing. You can't know the whole Bible because of you know, knowing these gardens. You're not going to get the whole Bible. But you can get the whole biblical storyline through these gardens. And, and if you understand these three gardens, as Scripture reveals them, you will actually understand the gospel. Because contained in these three gardens is the message of the gospel. And, and so um, I'm going to focus mainly on the second garden. We'll, we'll walk through all three of them. I'm going to focus mainly on the second one because that's what our text is focused on. Um, but I would even say to those of you with parents, ask your children later, this is a good conversation piece, uh, what these gardens are. And uh, I think we'll have a rich discussion on the gospel talking about these three gardens. Uh, Here's the first one. The first garden is the garden, as many of you would suspect, of Eden. The garden of Eden. Let's go back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Genesis 3, verse 1. We know the story. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest You die. God told Adam and Eve, the wages of sin is death. The fruit on this tree is death. The penalty for sin is death. God warned them. But the serpent, verse 4, the father of lies says to the woman, you will not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you want that, woman? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her. He wasn't off away. He was just passive and indifferent, letting his wife Sin, doing nothing. And he ate. And so Satan comes and he's tempting and lying. And he's appealing to something in her that's in us. He's appealing to this this desire for more. This, uh, This insatiable desire that we always want more. We can't manage to be content with what we have. Maybe there's something out there that I could own. Maybe there's something out there that I could experience that I haven't experienced. Something I could possess that I don't currently possess. That could finally satisfy. 
We are very much like Adam and Eve in this desire. A delight to the eyes. She goes after it. She, she was after autonomy also. And we want that. We want complete autonomy. Because submission to God is a joy kill, isn't it? Nothing more miserable than submitting to God. Nothing more terrible than obeying His rules. Those will certainly not bring happiness. So says the serpent. He convinces even that moment, God is withholding something good from you. You don't have it. He hasn't given it to you. It's out there. And you need it. Because God isn't truly good. And His authority and His commands are not truly good. And so they exercise their free will. And they eat. And I use that word or phrase, free will, on purpose. Many people ask, does the Bible teach free will? Yes, it does. Adam and Eve had a free will. They were the only two humans to ever have a free will. But they had a free will. And everyone after them has received Not from them a free will, but an enslaved will. Here's a way to say it. The will we inherit from Adam and Eve resembles Satan's will more than God's will. And we know this is at least how Jesus interpreted the will. In John chapter 8, he's having a debate with the Pharisees and And then they say to him at one point, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, God. And they're getting very angry at what Jesus is saying. And then basically saying, we're born Jews. We're good. And Jesus said to them, if that were true, you would love me because I came from God. And Jesus says, but you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Their will was more like their father's will, the devil's will, than God's will. And Jesus said, this is your problem. It's not a free will. It's an enslaved will. It's enslaved to what is not God's will. I think Jesus taught this. And... um, the church has, you know, maybe for some of y'all, that's the first time you've heard something like this. This isn't actually new. The Christians have been thinking about this since the Bible uh, was written. Um, Augustine, in the 4th in the, uh, century, wrote out some conditions of the will um, in and after the garden. So he's thinking about the garden. He's thinking about Adam and Eve. And, and he, he wrote about, in the garden, we have the possibility not to sin and to sin. So Augustine concluded after studying Scripture, there is a free will. It was given to Adam and Eve when they were created. They exercised that free will and chose sin. Outside of the garden, Augustine said, or after the fall, it is impossible not to sin because we are now enslaved to sins, our wills that is, until they're freed in Christ And then ultimately, until we receive a new body, 
new heavenly body, then our, our wills are, are completely free to only obey God. Now, Augustine kind of laid a foundation for the, the reformers and the Puritans who came after, uh, and they built on this with different confessions of faith, and they tried to articulate these things clearer. So a, a London Baptist confession, 1689, uh, that Kent and I as pastors um, affirm, lays it out in five steps. I won't read the whole thing. You can read it later, but in summation, it says this. God made Adam and Eve with a truly free will, point one. Point two, that free will was unstable, so it could go one way or the other. It could choose the right or the wrong, the good or the bad. After the fall, man was unable to will any spiritual good leading to salvation. And I'm quoting from the statement now. He's dead in sin, cannot convert himself or prepare himself for conversion. That's third point. Fourth point, after conversion, the will is set free from its natural bondage under sin, enabled to freely do that which is spiritually good. Yet, because of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly will good, but often wills evil. Does that sound familiar to our own lives? And then the fifth in heaven, the will of man is made perfect, immutably free, to do good only. Man, we long for the day. I don't know if you do, that fifth point, we aren't there yet. We long for, for that. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about the will for? What does this have to do uh, with any of this? Well, to understand garden one and garden two, we need to understand the will. I think it's a really central Part of this. In the first garden, Satan's will was he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, seeking to bring death upon uh, this man and this woman, and then humanity after them. So he's exercising his will, he's corrupting their will. And then in the second garden, we see Satan enter and begin to do something to a, a particular person's will. We read his name just a minute ago Judas. And it actually says in the Gospel of John, that Satan entered into Judas. You say, in what sense did Satan enter into him? Begin to mess with his will. What he wanted. And you have this sick plot twist. It's very sadistic what Judas does, isn't it? The, the, the same man that Jesus is washing his feet a few hours earlier... He had received nothing but love from Christ. And then Christ, even that same night, just loving him. And then he goes and leaves and plots to hand him over. And then he comes in the garden later that night and betrays him with this kiss. It's kind of the height of human evil in terms of the imagery there, right? Just very sick. Very demonic, we could say. Literally. So we see all this willing, and then here, here's why I bring up the will as well, because we see Christ's will in this second garden. Let's go to the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. So again, Matthew and Mark tell us this, that this garden is Gethsemane. And I want us to see that Christ willed to go there. He wanted to go there. So because the devil wanted to go into that first garden and bring death, Christ wanted to go into this second garden to bring life, or we could say to die a death. 
They both went into the garden for death, but for different purposes. Satan to bring death to humanity, Christ to die to save humanity. I love uh, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. A reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You think he was going in the garden with the devil on his mind? We think, oh, he was just thinking about me. Well, he was thinking about the devil too. Uh, At least Mel Gibson thought that. Remember the Passion of the Christ? I I saw this right after I I was converted. Um, It was the last time I saw it, so I hope I'm remembering this right. But I think he, he got the imagery right. The story, he got the story wrong. But the imagery, the theological significance, remember Jesus is, is in Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. I think it's the opening scene. He's praying, agonizing in prayer. And then a snake comes. And then he just stomps it, crushes the head of the snake. And biblically, that didn't really happen. We know that's not actually in the Bible. But what was Mel Gibson trying to get at? He was trying to connect the first garden with the second garden in terms of what uh, Christ was doing to the serpent. That there's a connection between the two gardens. They're not disconnected. And so, you know, props to Mel Gibson for, for that little literary thing. It didn't actually happen. Let me, let's be clear. But he's pointing us to something. He's pointing us to something. Now, I think it's also clear that Christ entered this garden not to hide because we could think, okay, he knows he's about to die. He's going in the garden to hide. No, he's going into the garden to be found. He's going into the garden to be arrested. So verse 2 makes this very clear. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus goes to the place they always went because he knew Judas will find us here. Judas will know. And Judas did know. And Jesus was walking himself into a trap intentionally. Jesus was. He he wasn't hiding. He was in control of his destiny. He knew the hour. He knew this was the only path. Uh, For this purpose he came. He had to die. He knew every step to get to the cross. So he had to be arrested and he knew where he needed to be arrested. And he didn't try to avoid it. And and this is very significant when you look even at the Gospel of John because Jesus' whole life, he's escaping death. You ever notice that? Even at his birth, they're trying to kill him and and his parents are having to take him away because he's very good at slipping away whenever it's someone wants to kill him. Even in chapter six, it says, perceiving that when... Uh, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him away by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when they were trying to make him king, he runs. When they're coming to kill him, he steps forward. John 8, a few months earlier, Before the Garden of Gethsemane, they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself. You say, why? Was he scared? No, he knew it wasn't his time to die. He didn't come to be nailed with rocks in the middle of after a sermon. He came to go to the cross, and he knew that. 
And so he was constantly hiding, knowing the time is not yet. The time is not yet. Even in John chapter 12, so get John chapter 12 is right before 13. 13 is this night that he's in the garden. And he says this, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler, lowercase r, ruler of this world be cast out. He's taken down Satan. He is the master of his own destiny. He knows all of human history. He and the Father have orchestrated in such a way that every single event has culminated into this moment. That he would be found in the garden by Judas. Arrested, tried, killed. And up to this moment, he had never, no one had even laid a hand on him physically to hurt him until this point. But at this point, it's Passover. He knows he is the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. And he steps forward. And, and get the irony. This is an amazing irony in this garden. Uh, at this time of year was Passover. And during Passover, uh, as y'all know, in Jerusalem, everybody traveled there, huge crowds in Jerusalem, and they're making all these sacrifices. And the blood from those sacrifices in the temple, they say, would have gone down in these different ravines and would have eventually ended up going into the brook Kidron. This brook that uh, led out of the city of Jerusalem down into and through Gethsemane. So this brook that they were walking over, probably stepped over, would have been dark with blood. And think of the imagery even going through Christ's mind as he steps over, sees the blood of all these slaughtered animals that can never take away sin, knowing I'm coming as a sacrifice that can take away sin. And we don't know uh, how many animals were sacrificed at that particular Passover, but there are records uh, of a Passover 30 years after this Passover. There's census records that there were 256,000 lambs slaughtered. It was a bloodbath Passover. And the amount of animals being sacrificed for sin. And so Christ is getting a very vivid image of what he must do. And look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. You see the intentionality? He is no victim. He, he didn't, they didn't take his life from him. He, he's giving it. Judah, or Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, walked into the trap of Judas and this band of soldiers, officers of the chief priests, Pharisees, 
with lanterns, torches, and weapons. That's who Judas brought. And look at this categorization. Band of soldiers. That's Roman soldiers. Uh, some scholars estimate this could have been anywhere from two to 600 because of the phrase being used here. We know uh, this is a certain amount of, of Roman soldiers. Um, it says also some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. So maybe uh, this was, people estimate, three to 400 soldiers. And you think, well, how did they have that many soldiers in this little city of Jerusalem? Well, they typically wouldn't have had that many soldiers, uh, but this is Passover. You ever heard of riot control, right? When you have a, a, you're scared about some sort of insurrection or riot that could happen, you bring in extra military, you bring in extra um, guards, and, and, and all of these men are there for Passover. And so when they get the word, we're going to go arrest this itinerant preacher, one of his disciples has handed him over. They had, they literally sent a whole army to get an unarmed man. <laughs> and I'm not law enforcement, you know, or military. I don't have that background, but it seems like overkill to me. About a thousand soldiers, one unarmed man. They think he's going to run. You know, uh, it seems like uh, even Judas maybe thought this. He's the one who tipped him off. So maybe Judas said, uh, he's always escaped. Nobody's ever caught him. They've been trying to kill this man. I don't know how he does it, but you better bring extras. And so they come with their torches, their weapons. And how shocked must they have been when he didn't try to run? He didn't even back up. He stepped forward. He moved into his arrest. He moved into his execution. He, he is walking to the beat of his own drum. And, and, and let me just pause, guys, because th this is at the point where maybe a lot of preachers, as a point of application, might say something like, if you want to be Christ-like, get some courage. Know your destiny. Fulfill your purpose. Step forward. Step up. Do something significant. Fight your enemies, right? And, and many people love those type applications because we want to be heroes of our own story. I am here to tell you there is only one hero to your story. It is not you. You need the Lord to fight for you. This 33-year-old Nazarene stepped forward to win your battle. Because he knew you can't win your battle. There is a battle you can't fight. And an enemy you can't disarm. This unarmed Jewish carpenter, itinerant preacher, who happened to be the Son of God, it says, came forward. There, the, guys, there is so much passivity in the church of God today. So much apathy and indifference. Look at the, the intentionality of Christ. So much hypocrisy of religion, they say, uh, but not in Him. That may be true, but, but not in Him. There's so much apathy toward holiness, but every step this man took was obedience. 
There's so much confusion and people were all trying to go, what do I do? I don't know what to do. What if I do this? What if I do this? What if this isn't right? And what if I should do this and not this? And everybody's confused and Jesus, resolute, knows his time, knows his purpose, knows what he came to do. You feel a contrast between your life and his? You should. You can't do this. You don't do this. This is done for you. This is done for me. He stepped forward. He stepped forward. And he said this, Whom do you seek? Whose name is on your warrant? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Which is literally, some of your Bibles say it in the little footnote, I am. Ego me. The same way Yahweh is identified in Exodus 3, I am who I am. Same grammatical structure. Same way Jesus identified himself in John 9 before Abraham was, I am. Ego me. Now he steps up, not hiding, but steps forward and says, I am he. And it says, they drew back and fell to the ground. You ever notice that? He says his name and they step back and fall to the ground. And some have, uh, have speculated uh, what it would have been like for these soldiers that fell to the ground that day. You know, that man comes home or maybe before he went that night, he said to his wife, or his wife said to him, hey, I heard you got called in tonight. He's like, yeah, we got called in, got to make an arrest. This itinerant preacher, Jewish preacher, not a big deal, few followers. I should be home early. And imagine her face when he walks in the door, and she goes, you look like you've seen a ghost. What just happened? And this man who had made all these arrests goes, I, he just spoke and we're on the ground. And she's like, what do you mean he's spoken and you're on the ground? What do, you do? what do you do with any of Jesus' miracles? You go, to, you go to a wedding feast and you're like, we ran out of wine. And then he multiplies it. What do, you, what do you do with any of these miracles that, that Jesus did? Jesus calmed storms. You just see a storm raging. He speaks and says, be still, and it obeys him. What's the point of that? It's that he's showing creation obeys these words that I speak. I'm not like you. He, I can, I, he, why did he wait four days to go to Lazarus, his friend who was dead? To make sure he was really dead and then he would say three words to him. Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out of the tomb alive. What is, what is the point? It's to show his majesty. It's to show his glory. To manifest his glory. And to manifest the glory of his word. The power of his word. 44 times in the Gospel of John, we see that word, word. 
And it's usually about the word of Christ bringing life most of the time. So John 5, 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Or John 6, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then many people in that sermon, when he said that, they got, he was saying some other controversial stuff. They started to leave and he said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Are you going to go away? And he said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But then there's one or two times when word, his words, are connected to judgment. So John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so when Jesus says, I am, and they fall to the ground, what is that? I think it's what we might call like a, a, a tremor, like before an earthquake and you get a little uh, preview of what's coming. They call them four shocks. It's kind of a warning. Something bigger is coming. I think that's what this is. He says his name, all the bodies hit the floor. And he's saying, so will it be on the last day. Every knee will bow. Hopefully, now. If not, unwillingly, they will bow later. Isaiah said that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Paul said he will slay the lawless with the breath of his mouth. Revelation says that one is coming out of the clouds of heaven and in his mouth is a, is a sharp sword ready to strike down the nations who refuse to bow. All peoples on that final day will be brought down and know the power of his name. And he's given these men this gracious uh, preview. It's, I say gracious on purpose because uh, one old commentator said he just put them on the ground with his word. He could have put them in hell. To just put them on the ground, that's grace. Wake them up. Maybe they'll see who he is. You say, well, how does someone know that we'll stand before Christ for judgment? Well, that leads us to the third garden. The third garden is the garden of the tomb. And I'll be very quick with this one. So the first garden is Eden. The second garden is Gethsemane. The third garden is the tomb. So we see it in John 19.41. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. That's where they put His body. The tomb in the garden. One chapter over, John twenty fifteen. He said to her, that is a woman who came, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener, there's another clue, he's in the garden. She said to him, Sir, 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Of course, he's just standing there. That's him, the risen Christ who had conquered death. So this is why I said at the beginning, if you get all three of these gardens, you understand what happened in these three gardens, you understand the message of the gospel. It's contained there. A first garden sin leads to the penalty of death. Death comes in the first garden. Therefore, Jesus enters into the second garden to die, not for his sins, but for the sins of others. The third garden, they put his dead body in that empty tomb until he rose. And what does the rising show us? He conquered death. All all of the gardens have to do with death, but for very different reasons. Teaching us very different lessons about death. There's also something else happening in these three gardens. Uh, There's questions being asked. These questions are actually interesting. I won't draw them out as much as we could, but in the first garden, we know the really uh, important question. uh, Kent talked about this a few months ago in that postmodernism sermon. Did God actually say? Right? That's what Satan says to the woman. What was the purpose of behind that question? Death. The question was motivated by a desire to kill and bring death on humanity. The second garden, verse 4 and verse 7. This is in our chapter, chapter 18. Jesus says, whom do you seek? He says it twice. Whom do you seek? Why was he asking that? Because he's going, I'm here. Come kill me. That's why I came. Which to to the world seems like psychotic. But then we know as believers, he wasn't out of his mind. He's coming to die on our behalf. The motive is pure love. And then that third garden Chapter 20, verse 15, he asks the same question as the second garden. Whom do you seek, woman? And that question was to what? Show her he had conquered death. He had risen. So let me say this just in in closing. Um, There is a lot of scholarly, some of y'all may be aware, there's been a lot of scholarly uh, study on uh, the garden, the Garden of Eden in particular, but then how, how that's traced out. But most of the study has been done on the Garden of Eden and kind of trying to figure out what is it? What, what is the garden meant to teach us? Maybe one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible is Genesis 3. What, what is going on in this garden? There's been tons of scholarly work trying to, to trace that out. And many have concluded that the garden is a temple garden, is what they would call it. A temple garden. And if that's true, which I I do think it is, man was walking with God, what's the purpose of a temple to worship and commune with God? The garden was a temple of God. It was lost in Genesis 3. Why does Christ enter the second garden? Could it be to rebuild the temple? Could it be that he's going in the garden to to rebuild a temple? To reestablish 
man's fellowship with God so that man could walk with God again, like in the first garden, only better. And so I've heard some people say that the Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a temple. It starts in a garden, it ends in a temple. And that's true, but what if the garden is a type of temple? What if the garden's the type of temple? So that what Christ is restoring us back to isn't just another Eden, but it's a temple, which is what Eden was to be and was. As every one of us in here, we were made to exist with God in a garden, like Adam and Eve, to be in fellowship with God, to have our hearts and souls contented in Him, to do the work He's given us to do. That was ruined. And we feel the effects of that. But do you see what Christ has done and what Christ is doing to bring us back all that was lost? To bring you all that was lost in your relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. This is the good news of the the gospel. We say in our city group all the time, uh, the best news of the gospel isn't just getting your sins forgiven. The good news or the goodest news, you could say, of the gospel is that we get God. We're restored in our fellowship with God. Let's praise Him. For this, Father, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have not just given us a long ladder to climb up to heaven or a bunch of rules to check off and complete to, to make our, our path and our pilgrimage back up to heaven. We thank you that you sent down your Son to go into a garden, Father. To die for sins that we deserve to die for. Praise you, Jesus, that you took the cup, that you died the death, that you satisfied the wrath of your Father, that you rose from the dead, and that you offer life to all who would believe. You will bring us into that garden temple, that greater than Eden garden temple to be with you forever. We praise you for this. We long for the day. Lord, help us to live lives that would make much of this reality. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.